Hey, uh, I want to let you know that we've been talking about finances. We haven't dug into a lot of the how-tos that would take you to being debt-free, that would take you through having investments that would cover your future. And, and so if you would really desire that, outside in the foyer afterwards, it, uh, we have a book available called The ABCs of Financial Success, uh, and we have uh, a five-part DVD series that I did here last year called Affluenza, and it's $10 to get all of that. And so if you'd like to, this book's a phenomenally good book. Uh, it's a very quick read. Uh, it takes you through a step-by-step process to wipe out debt and, and to live in a better way, a more free way. And I'd love for you to get your hands on that. Uh, if you're going to wipe out debt, though, there's no doubt that you've got to kill off one thing in particular, materialism. And, and we're in a society that, that finds ourselves being fed by having to have more and more and bigger and bigger. Kind of like the guy that, that his dream was like mine for a long time was to have an H2, a Hummer 2. And, and what he did is he went out and he finally thought, forget it, I'm just going to get one. And he asked for it to be loaded with all the bells and whistles and, and ended up spending $65,000 on a Hummer 2. He literally picks it up from the lot and is driving down the street thinking, I've got the car of cars. And he pulls up at a stoplight, and right next to him is a Mini Cooper. And, and he looks down at it and thought, yeah. Well, the guy in the Mini Cooper rolls down his window and leans over, and, and the guy in the Hummer hits his button, and his window goes down, and he leans over. Guy in the Mini Cooper said, I just bought that, huh? He said, yep, I did. Guy in the Mini Cooper said, how many miles a gallon do you get? Guy said, Nine. Guy in the Mini Cooper goes, I get 30, and he takes off. The guy in the H2 feels really insulted, so he drives over and catches him at the next light, rolls down his window again, said, do you hear this stereo? Guy listens to it in the Mini Cooper, and the guy in the Mini Cooper said, don't have surround sound, do you? And he said, what? He goes, I got surround sound in here, and he takes off. Well, the guy is so infuriated in the Hummer, he drives over to this incredible stereo place, says, I want surround sound with double subwoofers. You put those in. They said, you want an entertainment system? He said, I do. So they load that baby up. The next day, he picks it up. He's driving all over town looking for the Mini Cooper. <laughs> he sees him in a light, pulls up, cranks up the stereo, rolls down his window. Guy in the Mini Cooper rolls down his window and goes, oh, you finally got surround sound. He said, not only that, I got an entertainment sister, system. And guy in the Mini Cooper said, do you have a 42-inch flat-screen TV in there? He said, no, I have two 9-inch monitors. Guy in the Mini Cooper said, I have 42-inch flat-screen. And he takes off. Now the guy's, oh, he drives back to the stereo shop. I want a 55-inch LCD screen in my, my, my H2. And they're like, what? And he goes, no. And so they put it in, and he's now got surround sound, 55-inch screen. He's driving all over town looking for the Mini Cooper. He sees it sitting in a parking lot. So he pulls into the parking lot, Paul's up next door, cranks up the sound system. Not a movement from the Mini Cooper. Gets out of the car, walks over, knocks on the window. Finally, the window goes halfway down. The guy looks out, and he goes, oh, so you finally got something in your car. He goes, I have a 55-inch TV in my car. The guy in the Mini Cooper said, you got me out of the shower to tell me that? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it can become pretty self-perpetuating. Um, here, here's where we're going today. We want to talk about the idea that God has an amazing plan for your life. And the question is, are we going to trust him? And, and is he going to be able to trust us? Are we going to truly be people who are set apart and consecrated to him? Over and over, you hear people say these words. As a matter of fact, I heard it last night on the news. They said, there's never been an economic climate like we're in today since the Great Depression. 
This morning, Governor Schwarzenegger is supposed to go on an interview and talk about how California has never, ever faced a financial crisis like we're facing since the Great Depression. And, and you know what? Maybe it would be wise to look back at the Depression and learn some lessons. Not only about being over-indebted, not only about how the economy can turn, but about what's important. And, and there's a play, a musical play, that was themed out of the Great Depression. It's called Annie. And in the play, there's a girl who's an orphan, and she just has this optimistic attitude that she believes somehow, some way, tomorrow is going to be the greatest day ever. She's living in a very unhappy situation where she's not loved or cared for, but she believes one day she'll be loved and cared for. She's living without anything, and you know what? As long as she finds love in a family, that would be everything. And because of her optimistic attitude, a guy named Daddy Warbucks comes to know her, fall in love with her, and adopt her. Uh, I, I want to have you think about this today. God's great desire is for you to have a relationship with him as a father who adopts you. And maybe right now, economic times are tough. Maybe we live in one of those weird moments in time. But the truth of the matter is, if we trust God, we always believe there's going to be tomorrow. The sun come out tomorrow Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow There'll be sun Just thinking about tomorrow Clears away the cobwebs and the sorrow Till there's none When I'm stuck with a day that's gray and long Okay, I'm just going to admit it. I look for chances for her to sing. 
I really do. I'm looking like, hey, we got a depression thing. Can we do tomorrow? Because you just get Taylor out there. Uh, don't you love that girl? I mean, I just really do. As a matter of fact, uh, and I think probably a lot of you might have already picked it up, she's just genuinely, genuinely a sweetheart. I mean, by that, she's got such a heart for God, such a care for others. I've watched her, just the way she loves on people, cares about people. And a few weeks ago, on Monday night at junior high, they had her help lead worship. And she actually told us, she said, I'm more nervous about that than performing. And here's why. Because she wanted to honor God in such a big way. Uh, And and I just love her heart. I, I love how she has that compassion. And I want you to hopefully be in First Chronicles 29. I, I want to have you think about the whole issue of heart. Uh, and what defines us? Who are, you? Who, who are we? Who am I? Who are you? And in this room today, there might be ways to help us categorize and define ourselves. For instance, there are Nordstrom shoppers and there are Walmart shoppers. Right? Yeah, there, there are people here who only use credit card almost exclusively. And there are many of you who are cash only. Uh, In this room, there are big tippers, big, big, big tippers, and there are pastors. (laughs) I actually talked to a bellman once, and uh, I said, so how are you enjoying the convention in town? It was a Christian convention. And he said, not at all. And I said, why not? He goes, you pastors, you come into town with your $10 bills and your 10 commandments, and you don't break either. (laughs) (laughs) But the question today is, who are we? Because there are people here who really, truly, genuinely trust God. And there are people who don't. There are people here today that God can trust you. He could trust you. I mean, you're faithful in your life. And there are those who honestly, they're not completely faithful. Uh, There are people here today who are consecrated to God. And I'm going to actually help you define what that means in a minute. Sincerely, you could say, I am consecrated to God. And I want to talk about what that means. But there are people who are And there are people here who are not. There are people here who have genuinely gone through a conversion process. And there are those who have not. Uh, And that doesn't make it good or bad. It just gets real honest about who we are. And and what are we talking about? See, we talk about the whole idea of level four. And and, and if you're brand new to this, what it is, level one is for people who are genuinely asking questions. Now, you're asking, is there a God? You're asking, why are there so many religions? You ask, does life matter? And is there something that comes beyond this life? You're asking, what should my priorities be? You're asking, if God is the God of the Bible, what does that mean? Is the Bible true? And most of all, is Jesus really who he said he was? And should I trust in him? And do I, I begin to understand I'm called into a relationship with God based on Jesus and not on me. And you begin to ask those questions. And it's a great place to be because God promises something. God says, if you seek after me with all your heart, not partway, but all your heart, then you will find me. Uh, then level two is when you come to conversion process and you enter into that relationship with God and and you literally say, I want to give my life to him and I want to experience him. I want to be adopted by him. I want to be cleansed. But, But before we leave level two, let me tell you something. Martin Luther said that conversion, and by the way, Martin Luther is is a man who believed by faith and faith alone. So much so he had a hard time reading the book of James. He was so into faith. But you know what Martin Luther said? Martin Luther said, true conversion takes place in three areas of our life. And until all three are fulfilled, there's no true conversion. It's the head, the heart, and the purse. The head, the heart, and the purse. And you know what he's saying? He's saying to you, you know, if your finances aren't committed to God, there's not true conversion in there. 
And so when someone goes through conversion, we know it's a place where you fall in love with God with all your heart, mind, and soul. In every area of your life, this is. And so we've got to ask, does conversion take place? That's level two. Level three is where somebody uh, begins to connect with God in very intimate, amazing, real ways. And later on, I want to get into how we connect deeply and intimately with God in ways that rocks our world and causes us to be more and more in touch with him. But then level four is where it's an all-out commitment. And by the way, this isn't an area of maturity. You immediately are level four when you live your life saying, not my will, but your will be done. God, you asked me to do something, I will. By the way, it's not an area of perfection. If you stumble and fall, the Bible says a righteous man falls seven times, but always rises again. A matter of fact, it's so much about not perfection. Uh, A person at level four actually is more aware than ever of their imperfections. So if you came and said, Chuck, I want to be level four, but I have things to fix in my life, that may mean more than ever you're level four because you're saying, I see a holy God and I see the changes I've got to make, but I want to make them. That's a level four attitude. It's an all out saying, God, I want every part of my life to be enveloped by you and pleasing to you and completely devoted to you. And then how about this word? Consecrated to you. Consecrated to you. Now, now, I want to ask you to think about that. Is conversion taking place? Are you truly God's in head, heart, and purse? Uh, uh, are you wholly devoted to God saying, I just want to be set apart to you? And that's what it means to be level four. And, and as we get there, David's going to talk about that in First Chronicles 29. It, before we go there, let me remind you of something and then add something new. We saw a couple weeks ago that a person who's level four believes scripture and the scripture teaches that everything in the world belongs to God. Now, God says that all the world is mine and all it contains. So everything is God's. But are you ready for this? The Bible also teaches not only that everything belongs to God, including you and me, the Bible also teaches that everything you and I have comes from God. Deuteronomy 8, 18 says, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth. How do I have any ability at all in my life to have income come in? I know it's from God. And so therefore it's from him and it's his. And I I believe and trust in that. And by the way, David did. David talks about that. And look at 1 Chronicles 29. We'll skip down to verse 14. And what he's talking about is how incredible it is, God, to give back to you. What a joy it is, God, to give to you. And that's that conversion of person, a heartfelt just desire to worship God. And he says this in verse 14. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? God, who are we that we get to give to you? I almost shudder with joy and almost an awe and reverence that I could put something back in your hands. And he says, who are we? And then he says this. He says, for all things come from you and from your hand we have given you. All things in our lives came from you and it's from your hand that we could even give back to you. God, I don't think I'm doing anything that's so out of the ordinary or over the top when I return to you because it was yours anyway. And you gave it to me and, and I believe that, Lord, with all my heart. Now David's great desire, go up to verse one. David's, David's great desire was to, to give God a gift called the temple. Uh, uh, and, and God told David, he said, David, you need to understand, I do not dwell in a temple made with hands. Uh, there would be one that would hand him a temple one day that God would love even more than the physical one, and that would be when Jesus Christ gave birth to the church, his temple today. 
Where's the temple of God today? Well, it's an individual believer who's tied into the church, and the church is the temple of God. And Jesus gave that to God. And God told David, I want you to know that I don't dwell in a building made with hands. He says, but I got to tell you this too, David. I can't allow you to build a physical temple for me because you committed murder. I'll allow you to prepare it. I'll let your son build it. And David was heartbroken. He wanted to do this so much for the Lord. But he threw himself into the preparation of the temple. And he's coming towards the end of his life. And he's called for Solomon to be the king that follows him, his son. And then he begins to talk about the building of the temple. And notice what he says in verse 1. Then King David said to the entire assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is still young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now with all my ability, I have provided for the house of my God the gold of the things of gold and the silver and the things of silver and the bronze and the things of bronze and the iron and the things of iron and the wood and the things of wood, onyx stones and inlaid stones, stones of antimony and stones of various color and all kinds of precious stones, alabaster in abundance. Now before we read on, listen to what he just said. He said, I I want Solomon to complete this, but he's young and inexperienced. So I've left plans for him to follow, and I'm teaching him how to do it. And I've already given him everything that's needed for the temple. He has all the gold that's needed, all the silver that's needed, all the wood that's needed. He has everything he needs, and I have provided that. Now now notice what he says next in verse 3. Moreover, in my delight in the house of my God. I want to stop there. David talked about how blessed is the man who delights in the Lord. And he said, in my delight for God, what's he going to do? This is how I delight in the Lord, he said. Moreover, in my delight in the house of my God, the treasure I have of gold and silver, I give to the house of my God. Now notice these next words, over and above all that I have already provided for the holy temple. And he goes on to explain what that means, verse 4. Namely, three talents of gold and the gold of Ophir, 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the buildings of gold, the things of gold, and silver, the things of silver. That is for all the work done by craftsmen. He said, I just gave and gave and gave over and above. Now, now, don't miss what he's saying. The need is met. There's no more need. There's enough wood, gold, everything set apart. The plans are made. But I can't live that way. Because I delight in the Lord my God. I've got to give over and above. So he goes, I'm giving even more. And then in verse 5, he asks a question. Don't miss it. It's right in the middle. Who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? Now I want to ask that question. Who here is willing to consecrate yourself to God? Who amongst us is saying, I want to be totally set apart for God. I'm willing to worship God with everything. I'm not only willing, I'm wanting to do it. Who here today is willing to consecrate himself and who is not? Now, now, I want you to grab that. Now, how do they consecrate themselves? Look what it goes on to say in verse 6. Then the rulers of the father's households and the princes and the tribes of Israel and the commanders of thousands and of hundreds and the overseers of over the king's work, offered willingly. Offered willingly. It should never be by compulsion. If you're consecrated, you say, I can't wait to do this. I delight in God to do this. And notice what it goes on to say in verse 7. And for the service of the house of God, they gave 5,000 talents of uh, uh, 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, which, by the way, could almost pay off our national debt. And uh, 10,000 talents of silver and 18,000 talents of brass and 100,000 talents of iron. 
And whoever possessed precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jael the Gershonite. Now, 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 did you catch what's going on? Notice he said, David said, I already took care of the need. It's met. I'm going to give over and above. Who's consecrated to God? And what did they do? We want to give over and above. Is there a need to give to? No, they're not giving to a need. They're giving to the Lord their God. They're giving not because of what they're going to get. They're giving because they love God with all their heart. What does that mean? They're consecrated to God. Who is consecrated to God? And notice verse 9, the outcome of this amazing movement of spirit and community. It says in verse 9, then the people rejoiced. You see, joy is the great outcome of it. But why did they rejoice? Verse 9, then the people rejoiced because they offered so willingly, for they made their offering to the Lord with a whole heart, and King David also rejoiced. A consecrated person, number one, offers willingly. Number two, they offer to the Lord. It goes to God, not to a need, not to a cause. It goes to God. And the next thing it is, they did it with all their heart. No holding back, no halfway, no lukewarm. They're seeking God with all their heart. They're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. And by the way, the need is taken care of. David's added over and above. And they said, let me in too. Why? Because that's how level four people live. That's who they are. They worship God that way. That's how they view it. And their love for God is so amazing and deep and motivating. They do it willingly and they do it with the whole heart and they do it to the Lord. And God's great desire is that's what we would have a heart to do. And it is a matter of the heart. Jesus said that in Matthew 6 verse 19. He said this. Listen to what Jesus said. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. The eye, now notice this. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great the darkness. Now what is he talking about? He tells us. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Jesus said it's a matter of the heart. Where your treasure is, your heart is also. It's a matter of, of what directs your life. The eye is the lamp of the body. And when your eye is light because it's so devoted to God and your treasure is with God, it says that the light in you is great and incredible. But when your eye is bad, because you always look around saying, what do I get out of it? How, well, I need to know that I, and I'm controlling this. He says, when you begin to hold on too tightly to wealth and see it as yours, God says, you know what, how great the darkness is within you. It's a matter that affects you in amazing number of ways. You see, we've said this before and it's true. Nothing defines you more than how you spend your money. That's what Martin Luther's getting at. He said, I could say I love God all day long, but when I'm holding back in that area, where is true conversion? David says, David says, do you want to be consecrated to God? Then you, you over and above want to give to him. You delight in him, that's why you do it. And by the way, it needs to be willingly. But, but here's the key I want to go to. Nothing defines you more than that. This defines your spiritual existence. It defines your priorities. It defines your life. And it's everything about really, truly having a relationship with God or not. But you know what? It not only defines you, it affects you. 
See, we know that's true today. We're seeing it happen over and over. If we would live our lives according to God's principles, we would be free and we would flourish and we would have a life that's incredible. But today we're watching person after person head down the wrong road. And it affects them. A Gallup poll found this just recently. 64% of couples who argue, their reason for arguing is what? Money. So it's affecting couples and families. There are children in homes today that are being rocked by arguing and fighting because of money. But if they would live their lives according to God's principles, there would never even be an issue. And so it affects families. It affects your freedom and ability to have the abundant life. An ABC News poll found, are you ready for this? The average baby boomer. Now, now, now think about this. Baby boomers, well, I was talking to a financial consultant yesterday. Do you realize starting January 1 of this year, that every day 7,000 baby boomers are retiring? 7,000 a day, and that's going to go on for years. But ABC News found the average baby boomer only has $1,000 saved up for retirement. So what are happening? 7,000 people are having to end their jobs and they have no income coming in and no ability to live. And we're watching a self-perpetuating uh, poverty problem that's going to escalate amongst elderly people at an incredible rate. And this country's not ready to provide services for that. And if you think we're in trouble now, you start adding on impoverished people every single day. And why is that happening? Is it because they were listening to God's ways of handling their finances or not? No, they weren't. And you know what? As we got to grab hold, that's where we're headed. Now, now the next generation, Generation X, isn't in any better shape. Uh, a recent poll found that 25% of Generation X people are spending $16,000 a year more than they make. One quarter of all Gen Xers are spending $16,000 a year more than their income comes. You might ask, how are they doing it? It's all charging. It's credit. And, and by the way, 50, over 50% of Gen Xers are so overwhelmed with school debt that they don't see any possibility of paying it off in their lifetime. So we've got the baby boomers in trouble. We got Gen X in trouble. And guess what? Uh, the millennial generation's not on any better path. Matter of fact, they may be the most materialistic generation we've given birth to. And, and, and the bottom line is we're watching this incredibly ruining lives. And, and God says it does affect you. It, it affects your family. It affects your freedom. It affects the ability to have the abundant life. It affects you in every way. You probably heard about the woman that walked into her husband one day and she said, I am mortified by how we live. I'm sick of it. I'm embarrassed. And he said, what do you mean? And she said, don't you realize my mom pays our rent? My brother pays for our food? My uncle pays for our car and our gas. And her husband looked at her and said, you ought to be embarrassed. You have two uncles that don't give us a dime. <laughs> you know what, though, scary? A lot of people are living that way. They're expecting someone else to bail them out. They're expecting someone else to take care of them. But the reality is this, is we're watching people get in more and more and more trouble. And you know, God says it should be the opposite for all of us who follow him. Proverbs 21 verse 20 says, There is precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man swallows it up. Uh, you, you want it, are you ready for a definition here? If you're wise today, you have enough investment that financial times and economic uh, climates do not affect you. You have enough. And you find it growing. That's a wise person. A foolish person doesn't have it. A foolish person lives paycheck to paycheck. And by the way, according to the Wall Street Journal, 70% of the people in the United States are living paycheck to paycheck. 
God looks at that and says, what are you doing? Is your life going to be consecrated to me? Are you going to live according to my ways? Or, or do you want an abundant life? Jesus said, I came in to give you life and life abundantly. And we're watching ourselves overwhelmed with stress and debt. And we're not living the way God wants us to. And then David calls out. God calls out. Who is consecrated to me? And uh, Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent lead to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. And I want to tell you, the poverty we're seeing is greater than material, greater than financial. We're watching a poverty of lives that aren't living life completely. And God says, come find me, be converted to me, live with me, trust me. I want to ask you, do you trust him? Do you really trust him? Are you ready to say, no more my way, but your way? And can he trust you? And are you ready to say, I'm consecrated to you completely, God, so that my heart and everything about who I am is there? So though, here's the question. Do we believe that God would pass the test if we trusted him completely? And here's the next one. Where are we in passing the test? Now, it might surprise you to know something today. I found out a lot of people didn't know this. But in the Bible, numbers are big. The number 40 has a, a very interesting background and meaning. The number seven, almost everybody here knows that, right? The number seven is the number of completeness. By the way, the number six, <laughs> that's scary, right? Six, six, six. By the way, this year we did not baptize a 666th person. I wouldn't allow it. So we have a 665A, 665B, and 667. But uh, uh, so none of you who got baptized this year go, I was six, six. No, you weren't. But six is a, a number that, that usually goes to evil. Did you know about 10? What does 10 mean? You, you might be surprised. 10 very often in scripture is associated with a test. A test. The number 10 very often is a test. Are you going to be faithful? Uh, in Daniel chapter 1 verse 14, Daniel went to the head of the uh, eunuchs and he said, I do not want to defile, defile myself by eating food that God would not want me to eat. Would you please allow us to be uh, uh, set apart from this, to be, in other words, consecrated from it? And the eunuch said, all right, here's what I'll do. I'll test you 10 days. And they passed the test. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is talking to a church. Now, I'm going to bring this up later, but don't miss this. Very often, we are so individualistic as, as, as United States citizens. We act like everything's about the individual. That, that we do not realize that while God does judge individuals, God judges cities. God judges nations. And I mean, that's why when we read scripture, we go, how could he annihilate that nation? God judges nations. Now, don't miss this. Jesus judges churches. In the book of Revelation, he writes seven letters to seven churches. He doesn't single out individuals. And, and we as a community of crossroads are being judged by God as a church. And, and, and you know what the Lord says to this particular church in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10? He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation. How many days do you think? Ten. Ten. Uh, Joseph or Jacob uh, said, you've changed my wages 10 times, but God was always faithful to me. Uh, the 10 commandments were a test. The 10 plagues were a test. Now, you ready for this? The tithe is a test. The word tithe means 10th. And by the way, clearly it's a test. God is testing you and I to see if we'll be faithful by giving the first 10% back. But God actually says, this tests me in it. 
God says, I'll allow you to take the tithe, the tenth, and test me. Now, if you're not sure what that is, the first 10%, the tithe of your money is to go back to God. And you are to give it in his storehouse. In the Old Testament, the storehouse was the temple. In the New Testament, the storehouse is his church, his temple. And you give all 10%. And God says, I want to ask you, will you be willing to test me in it? Because I'm testing you to see if you'll be faithful. And in Malachi chapter 3 verse 8, he says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. And you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so there may be food in my house. And don't miss this line. And test me now in this. The tent and the test. God says, you test me now in this. He says, um, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour for you until blessings overflow, and then I will rebuke the devourer. That which robs your life. That's what takes away everything you want and need. He said, you test me now in this, and you see if I don't pass that test. So I want to ask you, just ask, do you think God's going to pass the test? I do. I know he will. So here's the question. Are you and I going to pass the test? God's going to pass. I'm positive that. You you give to him. You consecrate yourself. He's going to pass. He'll bless you. He'll stop the devouring in your life if you live according to his ways. But the question is, are we going to pass the test? So let's actually take the test. Grab in your bulletin this sheet that has a chart on it. And let's just take a test, first of all, as individuals. And then we'll take a test as a church. And, and it's actually a pretty easy test to take. And you may already know the answer. But let's just do this together. Let's work through this. What I want you to look at is if you turn over the back side that doesn't have the chart. And you see where it says, my current income and my current giving. And... and what I want you to do is to look and see uh, uh, where you are. My current income and my current giving. And, and what I want you to do is to take the time to just literally move down the sheet. And then what you do is you look at where your annual income is. So if it's less than 10000 a year, your thumb stops there. If it's, uh, if it's midway, more than 35000 a year and less than fifty, you, your thumb stops there. And, and if you go to more than 100000 a year, your thumb stops there. And then I want you to look to the right. That's how much you should be giving weekly. And if you look to the right uh, even more, that's how much you give monthly. And what I want to ask you to do, hold your thumb where your annual income is as a household and then put your finger where what you really give to God is and ask the question, is there a disconnect? Or are you fine or are you over and above? By the way, to God, this is not graded on A, B, C, D. It's pass or fail. You're either there or you're not. So, so that's, that's individually. And I want you to think about that. Are you consecrated to God? Now, flip the sheet over and let's ask the church question. Here's the church question. Now, let me, I want to make sure you understand that. Uh, if you look at where that chart is on the top, you're going to see the actual uh, uh, corona demographics. Now, I know we have people from Orange County, so by the way, yours are higher than this. And we have people, you know, from Rancho Cucamonga, and we pray for you. But uh, uh, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. But, but here's the thing, uh, uh, your, the annual income, what we know is this from the current demographics is that uh, if you look there, less than 10000 a year, only 3.1% of households exist on 10000 a year or less. If you go down midway at more than 35, 15% of people in this area have more than 35000 as a household income. Uh, by the way, if you look at the bottom, more than 100000 33 33.8%, 32.8% of the people in this area have a household income of greater than 100000 a year. Now, now, here's the question. Do we reflect our community? 
Uh, I want to tell you that we sit around in leadership and we've decided we either uh, are exactly like our community, we feel we're either that or a little above. But here's the question. Then either we're wrong about that, and this is an amazingly faithful church, or we're right about it and we're an unfaithful church. So I want to have you wrestle that through with me. So what you do is look down at the bottom here, and what you're going to notice is uh, on the very far right is the percent of population by crossroads giving. And notice the the less than 10K a year. Right now, 54% of the households that attend this church are giving at a rate that would show their household income is less than 10,000 a year. So do you think that's true? Do you think 55% of the people in this room today are existing on less than 10,000 a year as a household? How about this? 72% are are, are saying that by the way they give are actually existing on less than 15,000 a year. Now that means that either we're wrong about our church and this is an amazingly faithful church or something's wrong with what's going on here. Now I would say this, if we're wrong and we're amazingly faithful here, then we've got to change how we do things. Instead of having fuse and generate, we've got to start a soup kitchen for you. All right? So cuz I mean you can't be getting much food. Don't you think but but let me ask this question. If we walk out in the parking lot, will we get our answer? Are those the cars of people who earn less than 15,000 a year? Now we know there's a problem. Now I I I'm serious about this. Do I love this church? You bet I love you. But, but we got to ask, the, why is there such a disconnect? If we're a level four church, if we're a totally committed people, if we're disciples of Christ, why? There can't be a disconnect here. And, and, and it, it's, it's, it's something I want you to wrestle. Now, now let me tell you where I'm going to head next. Uh, what if we were faithful? What if we were faithful? Right now we're taking in a little more than $5 million a year and and we are trying every way we can to be faithful with that money to do great ministry for God. And I think we're doing it. But, but you know what? If we gave faithfully here, do you know how much we're coming in? Uh, actually, $15 million a year. If people here gave at a level that reflected who they really are out of a consecration to God, we would see, you know, actually more than $15 million a year come in. And, and we were sitting around a creative team, and I was sharing this with them. And the creative team said to me, well, Chuck, you got to tell everybody what we do with the fifteen. And uh, we, we started talking about that. And, and uh, you know, uh, well, how would we use that kind of money? Uh, and, and, and the whole idea is to assure you we wouldn't misuse it. Uh, uh, and, for instance, we would be debt-free in three years here. All our debt's paid off. Uh, and I think that's incredible. We never have a building program again. Uh, but you know what? We could take what we're doing to an amazingly new level. Right now, for instance, in India... In India, we recently uh, uh, agreed to and are actually kicking off the sponsorship of five evangelists out of central India who are going to go to Nepal, one of the most intensely persecuted areas in the world for Christians. These men are taking their families and willing to risk their lives. And our church today is sponsoring those five families as they go there to share Christ. We're going to see lives touched and changed. Uh, right now, we also have bought surgical equipment to equip doctors in India to go and do uh, 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 literal amazing surgeries on children with cleft palates and the ravages of polio and other diseases. And those children, like the one you see here, that girl's going to look normal today because of you, because of what we're doing. Now, if we were faithful, what would happen? If we were faithful, we wouldn't be helping hundreds of children have those operations. We'd be helping thousands of children have that operation. If we were faithful, we wouldn't be sending five people into Nepal. We'd be sending 500 people into Nepal. Now, now, that's what would be happening. Let's talk about Kenya. 
We just recently sent missionaries to Kenya, Doug and Jennifer Kurz, and I love what they're doing. We recently adopted a slum in Kenya, and we're trying to help attack extreme poverty there, where children are literally dying of HIV and AIDS, and, and, and most of all, of malnutrition. And 135 children right now have been rescued from, from or being orphans, and they've been placed into homes, and they're going to school, and they have food, and they have a uniform, and they actually go to a Christian school. Uh, we're starting job training in that community. We're upgrading the life of people. And so we're actually making that kind of difference. But if everyone here gave faithfully, it wouldn't be 135 children. It'd be 2,000 or more children. And, and we would see ourselves reaching in, not that slum. And literally, this church has the ability to eradicate extreme poverty from there. Not all poverty, but the extreme. We could do that if we were faithful. If we were faithful, uh, we could start a transitional housing program here that would get people who are homeless but want a chance and they're in a cycle of poverty they can't get out of and we could put them into safe places. And if we were faithful, we could help stop the problem of 2,000 churches every single year shutting their doors in this country never to reopen. That's happening. And there are churches today that I look at that have amazing potential, and we could go and help them. And here's what you need to know. Other churches volunteered to help us. Praise God that we rallied as a community and didn't need it. But they sent a little bit. But you know what? What would happen if we turned around and said, because you churches helped us a little, we're going to do it in an amazing way. And, and for instance, I just was with a pastor in Cincinnati, Ohio. This, this young guy, he was brought into this church that is so indebted, they're about to close their doors. They have a brand new 2,000-seat auditorium, all the support facilities in the city of Cincinnati, and the city doesn't want a church on that site. And if they close their doors, no church will exist there. And he said to me, Chuck, how do I get out of the problem? And we spent literally wait late into the morning hours me mapping out a plan with him. But let me tell you, wouldn't it have felt good if I looked at him and said, Crossroads is going to make sure you're okay? But we can't do that right now. We could. Now I'm going to get super honest with you. Everything I just shared with you, I'm really uncomfortable sharing. And I'll tell you why. We sat in creative team, and I understand why they wanted me to share it to you, with you. But if your reason to give is so we can do that, then don't give. Don't give. The only reason you give is you give to the Lord. You give to God. You don't give because there's a need. There are needs. You don't give because that, that we can make a difference. We can make a difference. It, the reason you give isn't that. The reason you give is because your heart is wholly dedicated to God. And if you go, yeah, I want to help those kids. Praise God you want to help those kids. But I ask you this. Do you love God so much you can't contain yourself to give? And I want this church to be a church that's consecrated and devoted. David said, the need's been met. Do you love God? And do you want to consecrate? And the people rallied. And you know, I feel almost bad. Actually, I feel even, I really do. I, I, today was when it hit me. Why am I saying this to you? Because if you do that, you're not offering willingly to the Lord. You're giving because we could do things. Don't give because we could do things. Give because we want this church to bless the Lord our God with everything we've got. That's why you give to him. That's who we want to be. That's our great calling and desire. And you know what? When God gave his only son for us, I think we look and say, God, I would do anything for you. Anything. Now today I want to ask a question. Are you consecrated to God? If not, you already know a direction your life's going to have to take. And you might say, okay, what do I do about it? Well, let me tell you what I want you to do. There's a card in your bulletin, and I want to be as clear as I can. Don't fill it out today. I've had a few people saying, have everybody fill it out today, right after the, no, 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 no. Don't fill it out. To me. I had someone come up and say, take the offering after the sermon. <laughs> no, we're not doing that. 
I want you to do it because you love the Lord. I really, I mean that. You know what? I want to ask you to take this card and I want to ask you to fill it out. But I want you to pray and pray and pray and ask God, what am I going to do? Then I'd like to ask you next week and the week after to turn it in. We're going to use this to do plants because we're going to trust you about this. But, but I want you to know that the main thing we want to know is how many people are praying about it. And I want you to take the time to really ask God, if you're a, a married couple, sit and talk together. How much are we going to really be consecrated in this? And are we willing to trust him? And are we willing to have him trust us? And I want to ask you to do that next week and the week after. We'll give you a chance. And we'll share as a church where we're at. Now, the most important part of the day, and I want to go into this right now. More important than all the things I said, and I think they're vastly important. The question comes now, individually, where are you with God? Can you say that you're in an intimate relationship with him? Can you say that you're completely his and that you're growing daily and amazed by the way he loves you, by the way he guides you, by the way he leads you? Can you say that's who you are? Can you say that you actually have hit a place where your head, heart, and everything about your life, including your finances, you just want to just envelop in him because you love him so much? And if you've never entered this place before, you might ask, how do I do it? How does conversion take place? Well, the answer is this. It happens when you literally pray a prayer. You talk to God and you say, I want this. And today we're going to ask you, if you feel that you want it very, the very first time, make that commitment to God and have him take you and love you and care about you and open you up to his presence and love. We're going to ask you right where you're sitting to pray that prayer with me. Maybe at one time you were up here at level four, but you find yourself shrinking back. You see, man, I was so on fire, so excited. God was doing amazing things in my life, but it's not where I am today. You know what? I want to tell you this. God couldn't love you more than he does. It doesn't matter what you've done. He would never turn his back on you. It doesn't matter what happened to him. What matters to him is do you want to come back? Do you want to be his? And so today, if you want to recommit your life to Christ, how do you do it? Well, Jesus said, do the thing you did at first. And I want to ask you today to pray that prayer with us too. So if you would like to give your life to the Lord and open yourself up to him for the first time, or if you would like to recommit to him and say, I want to be back, Lord. I want the fire. I want the revival. I want you to change me from the inside out. I'm going to also ask you to, let's pray that prayer together. But let's all pray first. Father, I pray that right now in this time, that you would touch us as a church, that we would be wholly committed and consecrated to you. Father, I know we've sat around talking about how it's sad that not just us, but other churches have never risen to that level. And not out of pride and not out of wanting to be anything other than who we are. God, my desire is that we would rise that way because we love you and because you love us. And that you would stir within our church. I pray your Holy Spirit would fan the flames of revival here that is real and that is committed and consecrated. Father, I want to pray today now that you would send your Holy Spirit in this room. And I pray, O oh Lord God, our Father in heaven, that you would touch any person here who needs to commit their life to you, who needs to open up their heart to you, who needs to be drawn to you or drawn back. And I pray right where they're sitting, they could sense your love and care. They could know that, Lord, you couldn't love them more than you do. And that this is their day and time to say yes to you. I want to ask that we keep praying. And if you're right with God, would you pray for anybody who needs to make this decision? But today, if you would like to commit or recommit your life to Christ, I'm going to ask you to pray that prayer with me. Okay, all of you that God's touching, let's just whisper these words together. Say this. Say, Lord Jesus, 
I thank you for loving me. And I know you died on the cross to forgive me of my sins, to heal me of my hurts, to make me alive, to make me new, and to make me yours. And I say yes. I want this, and I want you. So I open my heart to you. Please fill me with your love and fill me with your spirit and help me be who you created me to be and to live the life you have for me to live. And this I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Wow, praise God. Wow, praise God.